In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." When I talk to people about our church, usually one of the first things that I say, uh, if they're asking what our church is like, is that we are intentionally Christ-centered. And we're not alone in that. That's not a, a, a particularly controversial among many churches. Uh, many sister churches also aim to be Christ-centered. But when we say that, what is it that we mean? What does it mean to be Christ-centered? It's my conviction, the conviction of our church, that a Christ-centered life is the only and best way to live. But all of us, whether Christian or not, tend to find other centers that we arrange our lives around. But in the Bible, God warns us all that any other thing that we make the center of our lives will disappoint us, left unchecked, and may even destroy us. In our passage this morning, Isaiah foresees and foretells the beauty and the power of Christ which God has revealed to us and tells us why, gives us a picture of why the best and only fulfilling way to live is a Christ-centered life. And the best way to be a church is to be a Christ-centered church. Uh, if Isaiah were a TV series, we could say that chapters 11 and 12 of Isaiah are like the season finale. Isaiah is this massive theological and religious masterpiece. It's the third longest book in all the Bible. Most scholars rep recognize that chapters uh, 1 through 12 together are the first main section of the book. And just like a ser series finale, here in these uh, last two chapters, Isaiah is tying together several main themes, including some exhilarating reveals and wetting his, ap his reader's appetite for the next installment as well. Let me give us a quick overview of the whole passage, and then we'll delve into the implications for us today as a church of Isaiah's vision. So at the start of chapter 11, Isaiah had introduced this new character in his book, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And this new character is both a fresh start, but also a relaunch 
of a pre previously defunct project, or at least a project that Isaiah sees is going to be defunct, is going to go defunct in the future. Uh, the sons of David, the kings of David. Jesse was the father of David, and David was Israel's most famous king. And uh, the great failure in this first section is the failure of King Ahaz, a son of David, a king in the line of David, who's failed to trust in the Lord in a crisis that God has brought. Here now, that new character is also the root of Jesse. And in verse 10, he serves a unique role. He stands as a signal. Sometimes this is translated as banner or standard or ensign. It's a military image. When armies went into war, uh, it was common for each side to have a banner, an ensign or a standard that identified your army and your king. And in the confusion of the heat of battle, the signal could be a rallying point. If your army won, you might plant your flag in the new conquered territory as a sign of victory or wave your flag in a celebratory victory parade. If the battle went poorly, the capture of the flag might be the signal of final defeat. In verse 10, Isaiah imagines the root of Jesse as the signal flag that serves as a victorious rallying point for all the nations. In verses 11 and 12, Isaiah describes God's reassembly of his scattered people. We probably don't recognize very many of the place names in verses 11, uh, but, uh, apart from Egypt. So the end of verse 12 is incredibly helpful because Isaiah says the same thing in a way that we more readily understand. Uh, God is uh, gathering people his people return from the four corners of the earth. The, the places listed in verse 11 stretch from central Africa to the south to the Caucasus Mountains in the north and the borders of India in the east to the islands of Greece in the west. For us, that's a vast area, but it's only one portion of our mental map of the globe. But for ancient Israel... For Isaiah and for his readers, he's circling the outermost edge in every direction of the entire map of the known world at their time. For Isaiah, this is the entire known world he's describing, and God is gathering people from every corner, all four corners of the earth. Verse 13 then describes this reunited Israel. In Isaiah's lifetime, Israel had been split for over two centuries between the north, Ephraim, and the south, Judah. A new round of territorial expansion is then described as, this, uh, as this, these two previous warring factions, competitors, are reunited. Then they expand to include her historic neighbors, Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. This is a new Davidic dynasty matching the regional expansion and the high point of David's rule three centuries earlier. 
Verses 15 and 16 describe the miraculous nature of this remnant's return. The tongue of the Sea of Egypt is probably the Red Sea, and the river is the Euphrates River, which was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. At this time, in particular... Judah was a small nation that is squeezed between the ambitions of her two superpower neighbors, Assyria and Egypt. Isaiah says that God will take the two water sources of those two superpowers, the source of the strength as well as the source of military advantage, and God's going to turn both this mighty sea and this mighty river into little more than, ankle, than an ankle-deep kid's wading pool like you'd find at a water park. So what does this passage mean? If that's the imagery as, to, as we understand what he's picturing for us, what does this passage mean for us today? Well, the connection for us, the reason it's relevant for us and not just an interesting piece of literature from a long time ago, is because of the shoot of Jesse is Jesus, the descendant of Jesse and son of David through Joseph and Mary. Joseph, his adoptive father, and Mary, his biological mother. But Jesus is also the root of Jesse. He's the son of God who existed eternally before his conception and birth, the everlasting source of life through whom all humanity came into existence, including Jesse and David and Joseph and Mary. Notice for Isaiah, the root of Jesse doesn't simply plant or wave his flag. He's the ensign. He's the banner. Jesus himself is the magnet who draws all people to himself. In verses 11 through 16, the focus is on the recovery and the reassembly of the scattered refugees of Judah. But verse 10 makes clear that this global pull attracts not just Jews, but all nations. Of him shall the nations inquire. This is what Isaiah said all the way back in chapter 2 when we started our study. And we uh, had a reminder of this passage in our call to worship this morning. Uh, it shall come to pass in the latter days that all nations, many people, shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Isaiah, again, says this will happen in that day. In the New Testament, we see that that day is a historical period that begins with the conception and birth of Jesus and will continue until his second return and the recreation of the universe. So that day of Isaiah is actually the historical epic in which we currently are living. We live in this period during which God is summoning people from all the world to himself. Now, as we read a passage like this, it's incredibly uh, relevant to us, especially as American Christians, because I think we can easily get overly discouraged because it often feels like Christianity is in retreat in our society, or at least plateauing. But an antidote to discouragement is a truly global perspective like the one Isaiah invites us to take. 
One pastor recently highlighted the global reach of Christian faith in this way. He was uh, breaking it down by different Christian traditions. So he's uh, one of those Christian traditions. Actually, the most American Christian tradition uh, is the Baptist church by his reckoning. And uh, of 43 million uh, Baptist Christians in the world, about 33 million are in the United States. But then he continued on from there. And for uh, the Lutheran church, there's about 72 million globally, and only 40 million of those are in Europe and the U.S. Then you get to the Methodist church, and there's about 9 million Methodist Christians in the United States out of a global total of 40 million. Less than a quarter are in the United States, with the majority being in the glo- what we call the global south of Africa, Asia, and uh, South America. Then you get to uh, the Pentecostal Christian tradition. There's about 10 million Pentecostal Christians in the United States. And that is out of 279 million. The majority, again, being in the global south. Among Anglican Christians, 13.4 million are in the United Kingdom, the birthplace of the Anglican Christian tradition. There are 85 million around the world, and the majority are in Africa. Then finally, Presbyterian tradition, uh, which is actually kind of funny given the stats here. For Presbyterians, there's about 2 million Presbyterians in the United States. The global total is about 75 million Presbyterians in the world. The majority are in Latin America and in Asia. There are more Presbyterians attending Sunday service in Mexico than in the United States and more Presbyterians in Korea than all of the U.S. and Europe combined. It's actually uh, funny as you go through that list. Uh, Pentecostals and Presbyterians are the two most global, sort of least American-centric Christian traditions. Uh, And that's an uh, interesting pair, uh, strikes me. This is vastly oversimplified, but in the 17th century, Catholic Europe sent missionaries around the world. In the 19th century, uh, Protestant Britain sent uh, missionaries around the world. In the 20th century, American, uh, American Protestants sent missionaries around the world. And in the 21st century, the rest of the world is sending missionaries back to Europe and to the United States. They already are. Uh, there is a global reach to the church. And that global breadth isn't only an encouragement, it's also a sign. It's a sign for all people. Isaiah looks forward to the day when the Jesus banner will overcome the divisions of ancient Israel, northern Ephraimites versus southern Judahites. Many modern people reject Christian faith because they believe all religion is divisive. The only way to have a peaceful society is to embrace secular pluralism. Now, can religion be used in a divisive way? Of course. Christianity can can be used in a divisive way. But so can secularism. France is a classic example. We know uh, uh, France relatively well, our family. French Muslims don't consider secularism neutral. French society is highly divided between Islam on one hand and secularism on the other. If we rally to any other banner than Christ, we inevitably create divisions. We create insiders and outsiders. We create hierarchies of people who are better or worse, whether they match my identity 
or they affirm my identity if they rally to my banner. Christianity is the only source of identity that subverts any and every sense of superiority or hierarchy. Because Christians believe what the Bible tells us about ourselves. We're all outsiders. Jesus is the only insider. But he's the insider who is treated like an outsider so that through him we might become insiders to the family of God. We are all worse than we should, uh, should be. But Jesus, the only one who is truly good, is treated worse than he deserved so that we might be treated better than we deserve. This week, it even occurred to me that God showed incredible wisdom in preparing the people of Israel and the sons of Jesse and David to be Jesus's family and Jesus's people. If Jesus had just been born in whatever superpower of the time, his worship would always be suspect. If Jesus had been born in Assyria or Egypt or in Rome, or in a modern European uh, empire, or as an American, then people born in any other place would always have that question, is Jesus just part of the imperial propaganda? But God shows his wisdom and his power in weakness. He didn't need Jesus to be born in the superpower of the day, to be known, worshipped, and loved. He's actually born in an occupied region that was under the authority of the superpower of the time, a subject. Jesus doesn't need an imperial propaganda machine behind him. He's already, as Isaiah says, glorious and attractive. Now, let me add one point of particular application for our church. Isaiah tells us that uh, Jesus is the banner that will draw all people to himself. And that's why we aspire to be a Christ-centered congregation. And we're in this envisioning process, and we're uh, waiting on the Lord for a season of replenishment. He's uh, brought many people to us, and now he's taking many people and sent them to new places. Uh, And as we uh, wait for his provision for us, uh, here's one observation. Over the years, I've been able to be a part of uh, several churches uh, who have been in all kinds of different places on the the curve of uh, congregational life and development, and I've been able to visit lots of churches and through our presbytery learn about a lot of different churches. And when churches are seeking uh, renewal, and there's one subtle uh, problem that I think I've seen happen from time to time in certain churches the banner that they rally around can be not Jesus, God's banner, but, it, but out of love for their congregation, the, the banner can shift to be that church. Members can love their church and want people to, be, to come because they love their church and they want their congregation to thrive or want their church uh, to thrive in the way that it's thri- uh, uh, prospered in the past. But there's no reason that anyone should be especially excited about our church or any church if we as a church don't rally around Jesus and have him as our banner. 
if he isn't our ensign and our signal flag. So may God help us so that our desire to be renewed is as Christ-centered as we want our preaching to be and our worship to be and our life together and our ministry together to be. May God keep us Christ-centered and protect us from being Christ-Presbyterian-centered. Because when we are Christ-centered, Christ Presbyterian Church will be the best church it can be. It's a subtle difference, but I think it's important, and we should pray that God helps us keep that in perspective. But the good news here is that God's the one who's at work. God is now doing what Isaiah said he would do. He's gathering people from all the nations. And how is he doing it? In verse 15, you see, there's the diversion of rivers and seas. In verse 16, there's highways through the desert. But God doesn't say, uh, in the future, you are going to build some amazing dams. Uh, In the future, you will build some amazing highways uh, as you come back, right? Think of a cartoon image of uh, the people who are building the train tracks, and there's the people building the train tracks right in front of the train coming along. That's not what the picture is here. Verse 15 He, God, waves his hand and makes it happen. He diverts the waters and builds the highways. This is a picture of a new exodus, like Israel's original exodus from Egypt. And it was a miracle of God's own power. The new exodus of gathering people to Christ is just as much a miracle of God's own power. He does the work. We watch, we pray, we eagerly anticipate, we remain faithful, we trust him, we wait upon him, but he's the one who does the work. He's the one who draws people to himself. He may include us in the process, but ultimately he's the primary actor. There's a funny example uh, of this uh, just uh, recently. Uh, So as we're doing our move, uh, uh, as a, uh, uh, moving our church office, you know, we boxed up all our stuff and uh, we had boxes of stuff sitting around in our old office and our new office. Uh, and at uh, one point, Jonathan came into the office and on one of these boxes that had a stack of Bibles, there was just this note that said, could I have a study Bible? Right? We We had literally done nothing except leave a box full of stuff someplace. And uh, they're just sitting there, and then God prompted someone to make a connection so that Jonathan's been able to have a conversation with that person about God. The God God of the incarnation, the God of the virgin birth, the God of the atoning Christ can do any good thing that we need whether it's for you, your family, or your church. But before we finish, let's, let's just stop and pause for a brief moment on this miracle of the incarnation, that the root of Jesse, the source of Jesse, becomes the shoot from Jesse. 
This past week, uh, President Obama was a guest on one of the podcasts that I regularly listen to. He's talking about his new book. And during the interview, he mentioned that one of the main jobs of being president is just taking lots and lots and lots of pictures because as people finish their service in the executive branch, uh, one of the uh, pleasures that uh, they get, one of the takeaways they get is a picture with the president of the time. Uh, Pete Sousa was the chief official White House photographer uh, for President Obama, as he had been for President Reagan before him. And uh, President Obama was uh, explaining in the interview what were his two favorite photographs from his time in the White House. And he said that there, there were two of them. Uh, the first one was the photo of the Situation Room on that gathering of the night when um, they had the raid on the compound of Osama bin Laden. But his other, his other favorite photo was a photo that was taken with five-year-old Jacob, Jacob Philadelphia. His, Jacob's family was uh, having a photo be- taken because his father was finishing his work with the National Security Council. And uh, at the end, Jacob said that he had a question for the president. Uh, his classmates, uh, probably in kindergarten, had made the observation that Jacob's haircut looked a lot like President Obama's haircut. And so Jacob said, I want to know if your hair is like mine. So Obama replied, why don't you touch it and see for yourself? So he, he bends in half because President Obama is a tall man. I think he's as tall or taller than I am. Uh, and so he, so he bends in half, lowering his head, and uh, Jacob hesitated at first, so President Obama's like, touch it, dude, come on! And uh, he does, and he says, he said, what do you think? And he said, it feels the same. And that photograph has been become iconic, and it's become iconic because of the symbolic value that uh, many have seen in it. Uh, of the progress made by black Americans in our country who have suffered and struggled in so many ways, and yet this five-year-old Jacob was able to visit the Oval Office and touch the head of the president and see that his head felt like my head. His hair felt like my hair. In the incarnation, we meet not only a president, We don't just meet the leader of the free world. We meet the God of the universe. And in the incarnation, when we we come in the new heavens, the new earth, to see Jesus Christ, who still exists as a human being, a divine human person, we could go up to him and we say, is your hair like mine? And he can say, why don't you touch it and see for yourself? Because he's a God who stoops down to us. And he stooped down to live among us so that he might be made a signal, a banner, so that he might be lifted up on a cross. So that, as Jesus himself said in the last days before that terrible tribulation, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank and praise you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah. And as we go through our lives, and as we go through this difficult season in our uh, nation and in our world, uh, we are struck by the uh, 
the struggles that uh, your people have experienced throughout the ages. There have always been trials. There have always been tribulations. There's always been difficulty. There's always been misery. We thank you. We thank you for the words of hope and promise that you've given us through Isaiah. And even more than your words, we thank you for the word made flesh. Jesus, who has lived among us so that through his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we have a word of hope to hear and receive ourselves and to share with the nations. And we pray, Father, that you would make him glorious to us as he is. Thank you for the gift of your son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.